Please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning and welcome to NAM Talks. This month, let's talk fixed income. In particular, we'll be discussing US, Europe, and financial debt. And with that, we have an exciting panel this morning with five guests. We'll be starting our panel with Steve Friedman, Managing Director and Senior Macroeconomist at Mackay Shields, Eric Gold, Senior Managing Director and Head of Global Credit at Mackay Shields, Torben Skoderberg, Partner and Portfolio Manager at Capital Four, and finally, Jakob Top, Portfolio Manager at Nordea Investment Management. But before we begin, I'd like to remind our viewers, as always, we have an email address for any questions you should have, and that is nordeafunds at nordea.com. All right, Stephen, how about we start with you uh, this morning? In your view, what is the probability of a hard slash soft recession in the US versus Europe? That's, that's a great question. And let me start with some broad uh, framing of the global environment. I do think that uh, the global environment remains very, very challenging. Uh, central banks in most major economies are grappling with very high and entrenched inflation. Uh, and they're responding with significant policy tightening at a time when there are already uh, signs uh, of growth weakening. So I do think we're looking at a global growth environment that will be one of the weakest that we've seen, if not the weakest, since the financial crisis. And when I look at the three major economies, I don't see that either the US, Euro area, or China are really in position to drive uh, global growth. Now, China is continuing with uh, health policies that will suppress animal spirits and household spending. I think their policy support is overly focused on infrastructure and has diminishing returns, and the property sector is still far from recovery. And in the euro area, meanwhile, um, I think there are, uh, there's a very strong possibility that the euro area is already entering into a contraction, so certainly not a soft landing. And I think there are, are three simultaneous headwinds in Europe. You have ongoing monetary policy tightening, you have a weak external demand environment that will hurt the trade sector, and of course, the war in Ukraine and the resulting impact that is having on energy supply and cost. So in short, for the euro area, no soft landing, uh, a fairly sizable contraction, I think, is in store. Um, as for the US, I've been skeptical for some time about the prospects for a soft landing. The fact of the matter is that most soft landings historically in the US have occurred in an environment of low and moderating inflation. And that's just not the case at present. So. With inflation still quite elevated, the Fed just has little flexibility to pivot uh, and focus on signs of slowing growth, even if a number of indicators that suggest that you know, perhaps we're already at peak inflation. So I do see a recession in the cards for the US in 2023. The economy is holding up well currently, uh, given healthy household and corporate balance sheets in the aggregate. But next year, the full effects of policy tightening will be felt. And that is going to happen at a time when households will have further reduced the excess savings built up during the pandemic. Um, as for the shape of that recession in the US, I, I think it will be more than mild. I'm benchmarking a decline in GDP of about 1% from peak to trough and inflation rate, uh, excuse me, an unemployment rate that will rise to around 6%. Uh, why is that? Well, I think the Fed just needs to engineer a pretty meaningful growth slowdown and, and weaker household spending if it wants to be confident that inflation will return to 2% over time. So certainly a hard landing. And I would just conclude by saying that um, 
once the economy goes into recession, I don't think the Fed actually has a lot of scope to cut rates significantly as we've seen in prior recessions. Why is that? Because it's because we will go into recession with inflation still elevated. So the policy stance will have to remain restrictive uh, for a, a fairly long period of time before the Fed can be comfortable believing that inflation will be at back at 2% on a sustained basis. And that brings me actually to, to my next question is, do you think the midterm election uh, in the U.S. can bring relief to markets, or are we still going to see more of the same? Right. So that's a very good question, and clearly a, a focus for markets as well. Um, I do think we are going to emerge from this election with divided government, as Republicans are likely to wind up with control of one or both chambers of Congress. Now, typically, the stock market looks favorably on divided government, since that can reduce policy uncertainty basically because neither party can really get anything done. Uh, so I think we could see a, a brief post-election rally in risk assets, but I would expect that to be short-lived uh, given that recession is still not fully priced into markets. Also, divided government can increase risks down the road, especially if we're in an environment where there's not a very strong spirit of compromise among politicians, to be honest. And, and I would flag two issues. One, uh, next year, the debt ceiling will need to be raised in the US. Uh, and Republicans could try to use their newfound leverage in Congress to try to extract uh, spending cuts from Democrats. So I would not at all be surprised to see the debt ceiling issue fester and not get resolved until the 11th hour. And if we recall the last time that happened in 2011, that was certainly a time of uh, increased market volatility. Um, and second, when the US does go into recession, as I expect, Historically, you see some sort of fiscal policy response, but with divided government and still high inflation, any policy response to, to help households in a recession might be fairly limited. So that tells me that both on the monetary and fiscal sides, uh, in, in a recession, we should not expect uh, very powerful uh, policy responses that would support growth. And that's just another reason why I expect the recovery phase from, from the recession to be fairly sluggish. Well, thanks very much, uh, Stephen, for your, your macro insights uh, this morning. And I'd like to transition actually to your colleague, uh, Eric. Let's start, begin with you, uh, with our panelists this morning. Uh, where are yields and spreads and how does that look like uh, in a historical perspective for the U.S. high yield market? Good morning. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you for the question. Um, high yield spreads are about median. So uh, if you look at the, the full range we're about in that middle of that range. In, in our perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense given the comments that you just heard from my colleague Friedman. We expect uh, the US economy to go into recession and you typically don't see spreads at their long-term average entering in or in the middle of a recession. So we expect spreads to widen from here. We've started to see some of that in the weaker end of the credit pool, so to speak. Triple Cs have certainly widened. That's where there's the greatest fragility uh, in the high yield market. But we've yet to see any kind of real meaningful widening in double B spreads. We find that high yield investors for the moment are huddling, if you will, into the higher quality part of the market, given that double Bs are 55% approximately of the high yield US index. Uh, it is, it's reflected in about an average spread, uh, but we do expect that to widen, and we'd recommend generally a more conservative stance within the strategy. Thank you, Eric. And, and Torben, now we switch on to, to Europe. How do you see the same question, but for European high yield? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, and thank you for being here. In the European high yield market, we have seen a, a little bit more spread widening than what we have seen in the U.S., 
maybe also to what's going on in Europe, what Stephen also points uh, towards that uh, we've seen with the gas situation, also the, the Russian-Ukraine crisis. So that means that we actually above both the mean and also the average in Europe at, at the moment. So we have a spread level around 600 basis points, um, and that's for a double B minus asset class. Uh, that corresponds to a yield uh, to worst, which is almost a yield to maturity at the moment because everything is not trading at the worst point anymore with an average uh, price of the, of the bonds in the index of about 82 cents on the dollar. Um, so that's pretty much where we are. Thanks, uh, Torben. And finally, Jakob, can you tell us the situation in, in the financial debt? Yes, I, I think it's actually very similar to the situation in, in ordinary high yield which is almost as it always is. So those spreads are, are very highly correlated. So it is actually the same answer. Uh, I would just uh, like to sort of also view the yields in Europe on the back of where we see the German government bond yields. So they are super low, like 2.3% or so, which is very low, of course, especially versus the US. So for instance, if you look in the fund in say a US share class, the yield is, is easily 11 or, or even more. Uh, but it's also interesting to notice that, that yields are where they are in Europe, uh, I think. And, and another caveat, I think that's more, mostly related to financials, is actually that whenever you calculate a yield or a spread, I think Torben also alluded to it, you have to do certain assumptions on, on callability, which is actually on financials one of the major uh, one of the major factors. So if you, for instance, look at Credit Suisse, which after the recent uh, rumors uh, made 81 prices plummet, the yields to say a first call date uh, is easily 25%. Whereas if you calculate the same bond to final maturity, it's probably more than 10%. So, but anyways, the market, as Tobin says, today seems to be priced more or less to perpetuity, but but is that really the way to do it? Because whenever spreads are low, it seems that we're pricing to first call. So, so and, and in, in historical terms, I would say that spreads are like they were in 2012 or so during the great, or during the um, European uh, sovereign bond crisis, but they're definitely not where they were in 2008, much, much lower. Well, thanks, Jakob. So when, when we look at the, the spread development and the respective yield levels, um, do you at the current levels feel compensated for the risk uh, you're taking? Uh, on the spread side, what has been driving a spread? And in case of a hard recession, how much potential default risk is already priced in? And, and here, why don't we continue with you, Jakob? Sure. I mean, with financials, there's always fear. When, whenever things happen, like the Russian crisis, the first fear is that there's a financial somewhere that, that will go belly up, or all financials will go belly up. And I think also the recent example of, of, of the, the more or less panic surrounding Credit Suisse, uh, the thoughts whether there was a Lehman moment and what have you. And and the, f the funny thing is really that that there's really not much contagion from, from, from the Russian Ukraine, at least not the first order effect uh, on financials. And for, as we see it, Credit Suisse is certainly not anywhere near at even moment. So to turn to your next one, defaults, not really. I do not expect it. I mean, you may have pockets uh, in Europe. You may say, look at Greece, Greek banks, and think that they look particularly weak. 
However, they do have a lot of systemic support, uh, not least from, from the ECB and, and the general, the regulators. Uh, so, so is this what has been driving spreads? Yes, maybe part of it being the fear of, of all this, but, but I think it's more like uh, spillover from the general economy, exactly like we see in, in, in ordinary high yields with a very massive correlation. But in, in a way, I think also the, the more interesting observation is really that when, 2000, or when 2001 ended, ECB actually ended the QE. Uh, so the enormous spread decrease we saw from the aftermath of COVID going into the end of 2021 is really completely falling together with ECB increasing its, its balance sheet by enormous 35% of GDP to 70% of GDP. Now that's a massive balance sheet increase. So you have like ECP buying, I don't know, 3000 billion of bonds, uh, of course, supporting markets. They stop that, they need to stop it. Uh, sorry, they need to unwind it. And it's much more than it has ever been in the UK or the US. So compensated, I think when we talk about financials, I think they're in great shape. So yes, in that sense, but, but there's a lot to, to play out yet, I think. But it's, I don't think it's going to be defaults. Very interesting, Jakob. And, and Torben, I'd like to hear your views on this. Yeah, um, and the question is always being compensated on what? Uh, to get compensated investing in something, and when you invest in high yield or finances, or, then there's in the shorter term, a big component on whether you perform an asset class or not is how is the spread moving. And if we head into a hard recession, then uh, likely the spread will go up. And as Jacob said, we are roughly at the same spread that we were at um, and the sovereign crisis back in 2011 and 12. We were actually a little bit higher for some period of time around that. So there, if you look at the shorter term, you could have, uh, you could have some losses. Uh, if you look at the great financial crisis, we had the spread much higher, as Jakob also said, but already the year after, end of 20, uh, no, 2009, the spread was actually down at the level we're talking about now in high So who dare to go in at that very high level to say, so it, it is very, very difficult uh, question in respect to that. But what I can say on the fundamentals, then if we ju just want to give you some data points, right now, the default rates in Europe is 0.4% in European high yield. You get 600 basis points in and spread. Of course, it's not going to stay down at that 0.4% because we also think there's a great likelihood of a recession. If we then compare to what happened to the default rate back in COVID in Europe, we had 3% default rate. And the, economy was stopping for some time. But of course, it swiped back quite quickly. So there we have a data point. We also had a data point back in the sovereign crisis. It was about 3% also. We have a data point back in great financial crisis. So in 2009 was actually the worst year for European high yield with default losses. And there we hit 6%. So if you then say, okay, if I get 6% default rate over the next year, and the, the, the recovery rate is roughly 50% in Europe, you lose 3% from default and you get 600 basis points in. Now we, we, we put spread on the side, right? <laughs> because we agreed that was the shorter to move that. Then you actually have 300 basis points, even if we hit that, if you, if you can sit it out. And that's higher 
than the average long term uh, of what you should expect to get from high yield in the long, long term. That's 250 to 300 basis points excess return. So that's one way. Another way you could say, okay, if we look over the financial crisis five years and you say, now we're just heading into the financial crisis, very, very, very tough recession. Over those five years in Europe, you had 15% cumulative default loss or default rates. You lose half of that at seven and a half percent. So you lose seven and a half percent in default over the next five years. That's one and a half per year, roughly. And you get 600 in now to maturity, maybe with an upside, as Jakob also said, if you refinance before time. In that sense, you have 450 excess spread on the, on the European high, which is you know very, very high compared to historical. So do you get compensated? Yes, fundamentally, yes. <laughs> but I cannot say where the spread will move up. And it's very likely that we have a movement up over the next period of time. Uh, how to catch that is, of course, always a difficult, uh, you know, difficult thing for the for the investor. So I think that's how I would put it when we talk about whether it um, it makes value or not at the moment. Thank you, Torben. And and finally, uh, Eric, back to you. Thank you. Okay, so we think about risk in two different buckets uh, in U.S. high yield and investing. The first is volatility, right? That's the price mark to market. Um, and, and that, of course, can be uncomfortable. Uh, everyone likes volatility up. No one likes volatility down. Uh, but we also live in an asset class where there's the second and much more concerning risk, and that's default risk, which is a permanent capital impairment or loss. And the market does a pretty good job of separating those things out. Today, if you look at uh, the high yield market in the U.S., what you might call the distress part of that index, those names trading at 1,000 basis points or more, uh, is a little less than 6% of the index. This is the bucket or the pool of names that could, in fact, uh, the market is telling you have a chance of defaulting. Not all of them will default, of course, but the market is suspect and concerned about their viability in a challenged economic environment. <clears throat> now, if we go into a recession, uh, as I think many of us expect is, is likely, uh, we might find more companies fall into that bucket uh, of thousand over or distressed spreads. So we could see default levels rise considerably from where they are today, which is probably around 2% or a little bit under. But I think the market is telling you is that number today, it looks like it could be as high as, as 6%. Question is, how is that price in the market? And, and largely those bonds that are distressed are already trading at very low price levels. So uh, those situations, if you will, are priced into the yield. And so if you think about the yield in the U.S. high yield market at about nine and a half percent, about 100 basis points of that yield is reflected in those distressed securities. You'll look at the index, X those distressed securities, your yield is about eight and a half percent. So if you wanted to say, I want to slice the market up and think about return for risk, the higher quality or the market believes that part of the market that's higher quality, that's only subject to volatility risk, is probably getting you about an 8.5% yield today. Um, which again, I think if you think about through the cycle, and if you can stomach the volatility, uh, not, not the worst yield and return to get today. But I would be mindful, and I think a lot of us do agree, that going into a recession, we could see spreads widen from here. That would be volatility to the downside, not necessarily in that cohort, uh, an increased risk of, of, of material default. Uh, although I do expect defaults to rise, as I mentioned. Thank you, Eric. And my, one, my next question is a two-part question for the panel. 
And the first part is, so as we were just discussing the, the default risk, uh, could you share some insights about the, the current health of companies these days, perhaps compared to, to past crises? And how levered are these companies these days? And do you see some lessons learned on, on, on their side and being protected and being better protected? And maybe this one, Eric, we can continue with you, please. Sure. I mean, one of the nice things about having uh, low interest rates for the last decade plus is that a lot of companies have taken advantage of that and they've refinanced out their capital structures, right? So they don't have a lot of debt maturing as, a, as an index or a whole high yield asset class um, in the next year or two. So that is historically towards the lower end and therefore the, it gives you much better financial stability and protection, not needing to refinance into perhaps more difficult liquidity uh, uh, markets. So I think that that's a positive. From a leverage point of view, uh, the, the asset class has been very disciplined. This is perhaps very different than other asset classes, which has taken advantage of low rates to add a lot of excess. Leverage across the high yield universe has been fairly stable. <clears throat> and in part, you can see that with the rising uh, overall average rating. So if you went back to the peak of the last cycle, uh, pre-COVID, let's go back to the great financial crisis, uh, double Bs were maybe uh, just under 40% of the index. And today they're, they're north of 50%. So the quality has improved, leverage is down, as I mentioned, and liquidity profiles are pretty good. So in terms of weathering a default cycle or difficult economic uh, uh, environment uh, looking forward, I think companies are in fairly decent position to weather that. Thanks, Eric. And, and Torben, how do you see it on the European high yield side? It's a quite similar. Um, there's been a quite good discipline on the leverage, although it has increased over the last years. Of course, there's been easy conditions for companies to finance themselves. So we stand on a leverage in European high yield at four and a half times now versus 5.5 in 2008. If you include some of the COVID hit companies that are improving significantly right now, where some of the LTM figures are or, or last quarters are falling out and then we're getting more to the run rate, um, uh, then, then the figure looks quite nice. And then of course, the very low rates that Eric also talked about has meant that the interest cover is uh, quite, quite good at the moment. Of course, that's gonna hit when they refinance going forward, but it's much higher now, around 5% versus 3% uh, before the great financial crisis. And then on the maturity wall, then we only have about 2% in Europe that need to refinance next year. And then we have another 16% that need to refinance 2024 and about 20% in 25. So that's in line with the EX comments about that, that, that has pushed, pushed, pushed it up quite, quite, a, quite a lot. Great. Thank, thanks, uh, Torben. And, and Jakob, maybe going to you, looking at the case of uh, looking back, I should say, rather, to the financial crisis and regulation kicking in, which uh, supported the balance sheets of financial. How, how was your experience? Domestic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think, answer. you know, in, in, in 2008, in all honesty, no one was analyzing banks. Banks were just viewed as boring. And if there were a problem, you would just think, OK, this is something that the government will fix. So you will, there will never be any loss on any position in anything in banks. So bank debt was sitting in very risky bank debt or things that you today would consider very risky was sitting in, in, in money market funds and, and God knows where. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, regulation was weak 
and banks were, I think it's actually very fair to say, kind of casinos uh, with, with very risky uh, balance sheets, with a lot of off-balance sheet exposures, and with way, way, way too little liquidity, which obviously is one of the things that happened to Lehman, or actually all of this happened to Lehman. Uh, so that was 2008, and then regulation kicked in. And, and I would say it, so the last 10 years uh, has been uh, very awful, I guess, for bank equity investors, because they have really suffered the, the massive uh, increase. Uh, they have suffered from the massive increase in capital that banks have been forced to take, the massive de-risking, the massive unloading of all off-balance sheet exposures. And on top of that, they had to deal with low interest rates and at you know a mountain of uh, of bad debts, uh, but actually, if you look at banks today, all of this is gone. Equity is much much higher. There's very little off balance sheet exposures compared to where it was. It's it's not a casino anymore. Now we're really talking about a boring public utility, and and this is basically how I see banks uh, today. So obviously a very, very difficult uh, starting point and adding to it in many ways, you know, even if we are going into a rather deep recession, the mere fact that interest rates are coming up uh, and banks have had many years to get used to trying to take out fees rather than taking out interest margins. Now they can perhaps, <laughs> if they're lucky, they can do both. Uh, and, and this is going to be... a uh, um, it's, it's actually going to eat a lot of, uh, you know, losses coming from bad loans that they're actually able to increase um, the, the interest margins. And by the way, we haven't seen anything in, in banks yet. So they are still performing stellar in many ways. And even the equity year to day has not underperformed like it used to, as if people think that this is going to work with, with, with higher interest rates. I, I think, I, and I, then I can't help myself just because I mentioned the fact that ECB bought some 300 billion of, uh, of, of bonds uh, from 2020-21. This is, of course, also coming from government's funding of enormous spending during COVID to, you know, I don't know, to help economies, maybe a little bit too much. So really today, uh, it, it looks like it's ECB who is the casino because that, enormous amount of bonds or pile of bonds they're sitting on is actually giving them some pretty massive um, market value losses. And if they were to be regulated like a regular bank, I'm not sure how it would look like. So, so ECB is definitely not there to help out banks much going forward. And I think the same in a way probably also goes for governments because they have plenty to do with fixing the fact that, that they are overly um, uh, uh, leveraged. So a lot of the leverage, in a way, moved from the banks to ECB and in also the governments. So the banks, they look like they're, I wouldn't say solution, but they look fine. They're certainly not a, they're certainly not the problem anymore as they were in 2008. Thank you, uh, Jakob. And finally, for the panel, this is my uh, last question uh, to you to today. Uh, I'll start with you, Torben. Uh, so obviously, we've bought all of you here today because your key expertise in managing portfolios and your asset class. So Torben, how are you currently positioned within your asset class when looking at seniority of bonds, ratings, et cetera? And are you more cautious than you used to be? Um, I don't think we are generally more cautious than we used to be. It's a little bit about what the segments are we are 
aggressive in and more cautious in. On the capital structure within corporates, we are very cautious and has been that quite for some time. Uh, we really like to be senior secured and we much the strategy is much, much higher senior secured versus the overall market. We almost double up versus the overall market with that respect. Uh, we are a little bit lower on duration than the product, but that's also not within our core competence. So there we want to stay uh, fairly, fairly tight. Then within the different sectors, um, we do have uh, underweight on some of the more problematic sectors in this area uh, or this time of the economy. Uh, so for example, autos and especially real estate. And then we are a little bit more um, uh, you know, um, leaning forward from a risk perspective within telcos and services and healthcare. And actually with respect to banks that Jakob just talked about, um, we are not seeking into some of the weaker banks that is in the European high yield benchmark, uh, but actually uh, going there subordinated uh, with some of the more stronger banks. So we actually very much reaching out to uh, some of the investment grade banks that then has a 81 or so either on investment grade or on the high yield side. So there we, we take some risk because we have the belief that, and that's very much in line with, with the Argos comments here, that the banks are in a quite okay situation now with the increased earnings power that can offset some of the potential losses that will come from, uh, from the recession we're heading. Uh, on the geographic list, uh, we are still quite cautious on Southern Europe. We think that's going to be hit more on a recession uh, perspective. Um, and then you can see one of the big things in Europe is also all the energy consumption. So if you measure the portfolio on the energy consumption, or you can also say carbon emission perspective at the moment, we are very, very defensive there. So the emission of CO2 from the portfolio, if you measure that on weighted average carbon emission, we actually 60% of the market. So that should give some protection uh, in, in the current period uh, we, we are going through into the winter time. Thank you, Torben. And uh, going back to, to the US, Eric. So uh, given our view that we think the recession is increasingly likely, in my comments earlier, that spreads are just at median. Uh, those two things don't equal in my mind. And as a result, we would expect, as I think many of us do here, spreads likely to widen. Uh, as such, we're going to position ourselves uh, and we recommend to be positioned on a more conservative basis. And that's, in fact, what we would see. Uh, things that we would, would favor would be things that tend to have more predictable cash flows, less cyclical companies. Um, industries that might come to mind might be uh, utilities, for example, uh, just as an, uh, a case in point. Uh, but generally, the portfolio is shifted uh, to have below average risk for um, the markets. Thanks, Eric. And finally, Jakob. I think I'll repeat Torben a little bit by starting out and saying that uh, we keep the risk actually close to the references or the benchmark, if you like. Uh, so that's always the starting point. We're not trying to you know, go low or go high on risk as such. Uh, and also when it comes to what we like, I think in a way I'm also very much agreeing with Torben that we prefer going into the good banks and then down the, the capital stack. That, that, that's a preferred strategy from us. However, we do like uh, quite a few of the um, 
the, the, you could say high yield banks also in Europe. I just think that you have to be very selective and you have to pick the ones uh, uh, that are you know, viable business models, profitable, what have you. And I think when you start there, for instance, you, you basically cannot, uh, you don't want to enter into Greece, for example, a few of the Portuguese banks. So we're, we're staying out there. Uh, but but in, in Spain, we find we found quite a few banks that we actually like uh, quite a lot that are very domestically focused. Uh, and we have quite chunky positions in some of these as well. But it's absolutely correct to say that, that a quite large fraction of our portfolio stays with, with banks and for that matter, insurance companies as well, where we have 30% that are sort of very much investment grade like uh, territory. Uh, but that, that has been the strategy all along. There's actually nothing new in it. I would say that when it comes to AT1s, we generally, but that's not nothing new either, we generally like to actually not go with the, you know, the best rated banks, but actually perhaps more, more the second tier, or perhaps even dip, dipping your toes into the third tier to the extent that that, that that these banks are having very high reset spreads that you're not exposing yourself to this uh, uh, risk that has really hit the, the cocoa market with, um, with, 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 with valuations dropping. Again, I mean, this was very much something that, that you could have learned from the great financial crisis where suddenly instead of pricing to first call, you have to price to find maturity and the spreads are so low on the bonds that the price just drops to almost nothing. I think it's a price that, or a, a factor that is rarely priced by the market, but now it is, and, and hence to the to what you say about uh, whether it's a buying opportunity, which it might be. Uh, uh, I would ha also have to say that I think, you know, the, it looks to me like dispersion is coming back to the market. It looks like uh, tracking errors uh, are coming up massively. And it looks like you know opportunities present themselves uh, all along, which is spot on in our strategy. One of the examples, again, being the, the Credit Suisse uh, that we that we analyzed and 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 took on. Thank you, Jakob, and thanks again to our panelists, Steve, Eric, Torben, and Jakob, for taking the time for being with us this morning, and of course, you, the viewer. As always, if you'd like to get more information, you can either contact your local sales representative or check out our website at nerdeaassetmanagement.com. Until then, see you next time, and thank you for viewing.